Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hey there, everybody. Uh, I just thought I'd jump in here at the start of the episode and let you know that uh, this episode with Rob was recorded in early November of 2020. So the reason it's coming up here in January is that uh, January is when we can start to see more of those wildlife issues uh, with them getting hungrier and starting to look into our feed stores and that sort of stuff a little bit more. So hopefully this episode will give you some tools and some uh, tricks to ID those problem areas and some some ideas about how to uh, mitigate them for next year. So with that, I'll let you get back to the episode, and thanks for listening. Today I am talking with Rob Stavney, um, the Senior Wildlife Biologist with Sora Ecological Consulting, about the challenges of living with wildlife in the peace country. Uh, so I guess to start off, Rob, um, how'd you get involved in kind of wildlife management? And Yeah, thanks. Um, so growing up on the family farm in central Alberta kind of sparked my interest in the outdoors. I eventually brought my passion to university where I was able to get a master's degree in wildlife ecology and management, looking at the effects of cattle grazing on wetland bird communities. So the idea was actually to use cattle grazing as, as a landscape tool to manage nesting cover for breeding birds. Uh, it's my opinion that good cattle management and good wildlife management can go hand in hand and one can balance the needs of the family farm with those of their wild neighbors. So I put that balance into practice on my own farm here in Peace River, where I own my own quarter section and rent another 500 acres for pasture and hay. I try to maintain good grass cover for songbirds and waterfowl, and I'm working at improving some forest that cover to act as a corridor and resting habitat for deer. By ensuring I leave enough for wildlife, I'm also ensuring good health to my land. Awesome. And what are the kind of the main challenges that peace country producers and I guess kind of producers in the wider province too? Uh, what, what are the main challenges they deal with when they when it comes to wildlife management? Well, the main challenge can be quite varied depending on the location and the individual situation. But competition is for resources is likely the bottom line. Uh, Landowners might feel that they are in a battle against nature for many things, such as loss of crops to waterfowl or bears, loss of winter forage to elk and deer are especially big topics up here in the piece. Time spent repairing fences that are broken by moose or elk. Predation to livestock can be an issue. Attraction of bears to farm sites. Threats of parasites and disease. Could even include loss of fish from a stock dugout to herons or cormorants. And then uh, even the little things like squirrels and bats that can move into the house and have problems. Right. Yeah. So there's lots, there's lots of different opinions, lots of different opinions about wildlife in general, um, from really pro wildlife to very much not. Um, what are some of the uh, benefits of living with wildlife? Well, there's lots of benefits to working on living with your wild neighbors. Uh, for example, from an aesthetics side, is creating and taking advantage of hunting opportunities on your own land. 
lots of folks will provide habitat to an entire herd of deer and will watch maybe a young buck over the years until it has matured to a point where they might harvest a trophy. And that's a trophy not just for the headgear, but also for the local population that the deer has grown up in. So it's kind of a uh, feather in the cap for the, the landowner to produce that, that herd and that, that animal. Uh, can also spark memories of the past from when they were kids on the family farm, recalling days where grouse and deer were plentiful and uh, a very integral part of their enjoyment of, of growing up on the farm. Uh, it can instill a sense of pride and accomplishment to see the fruits of your labor and watching a nesting pair of ducks start their operation in the spring and then watching a big family group of ducklings emerge in your slough midsummer. Maybe you have a healthy creek that is flowing through your land where you can fish or relax at. Uh, the Saskatoon shrubs that you might retain for birds and wildlife as a shelter belt might also provide you with some berries for pie. Um, and then there's lots of economic benefits. Uh, maintaining water and riparian habitats from being degraded by cattle can help both wildlife and the rancher. Keeping the water clean enough for fish to live in, for example, and keeping cattle from trampling vegetation and defecating in their own drinking water will maintain quality breeding habitat, but will also produce higher rate gains in calves and keep your herd healthier through use of an offsite watering system. Encouraging healthy forested areas can provide shade to cattle during hot summer months. Maintaining habitat, which is also known as pasture up here, with many varieties of flowering plants and grasses can attract pollinators, which can help your alfalfa stands. Being in tune with the environment around you and managing the soils, the plants, and the assets that are naturally available to you can help with your overall operation in reducing development and input costs. For example, having to create a water source because wetlands were drained in the past or tearing up and replanting a pasture that has been overgrazed for years and years. Maintaining healthy grasses in your pasture can add nesting and forage cover for birds, coyotes, foxes, and other small mammals but it also provides a healthy stand that produces strong output for cattle to forage in. Maintaining good fences that are wildlife friendly can also reduce time spent on repairs and keep your own cattle contained. And it can also have an impact on resale value, having healthy assets, interesting features, good fences, good hunting, makes a property that much more valuable. And if you're not selling it, it helps your own well-being. Right, yeah. I guess adjacent to um, kind of the economic benefits, um, can the wildlife you see on your land um, be indicators of, of sort of your land health or your soil health? Absolutely, um, but it may not be inherently obvious and it, it kind of takes a, maybe a different eye to see it or, or thinking about different aspects um, in order to pick some of that stuff up. But a healthy landscape is productive and rich in biodiversity. It provides complex habitat that has vertical structure as well as horizontal density. From a cattle grazing perspective, these stands offer variety and selection of palatable and nutrient-rich forage throughout the season, which will match cows' changing requirements. They also contribute to snow capture and moisture retention for the subsequent growing season. A healthy landscape also includes natural wetlands and riparian systems that should provide habitat to a rich variety of birds and other wildlife. You have land that is bare of wildlife or only seems to harbor disturbance favoring species like red-winged blackbirds, coyotes, crows, or magpies. You may want to think about some of the components that might be missing. Right. 
And I guess kind of building on that um, indicator species idea, I know you've done some work with uh, the sharp-tailed grouse um, and uh, the grazing reserves. Can you talk about that project and kind of what you learned and that sort of stuff? Sure. For several years, I worked with landowners in some of the provincial grazing reserves to understand habitat associations for sharp-tailed grouse and to develop best management practices for cattle grazing. Sharp-tailed grouse evolved with high-intensity, low-frequency grazing, so they evolved with, with that sort of grazing system. They require grasslands that have a mix of grazing intensity. On their breeding grounds, which are on hilltops, they require low vegetation that has been grazed fairly heavily, where they can display with high visibility to potential mates. They also require nesting cover within protected shrublands or in areas of light grazing at forest edges. Retention of food resources is important in the landscape and can include new aspen growth and availability of berries into the winter season. Retention of residual grasses, so not grazing it right down to the soil, is good for nesting cover in the fall and spring. And basically in this sort of system, good pasture management for cattle really equates to good breeding habitat for sharp cattle. Makes sense. Um, do you have any other projects that kind of relate to this, this topic that you'd like to talk about? Sure, there are lots of other little things that I work at, but um, probably the other big one then that I could speak to would be my own master's project. So it looked at cattle grazing from a wetland perspective. And generally, I found that light to moderate grazing was generally better for bird communities to promote biodiversity, improve nest density, and nest success. Both extremes of really heavy grazing and long-term completely idle systems were not as good for birds. Heavy grazing is kind of a no-brainer. Uh, heavy grazing equals no habitat. Uh, there's, there's no cover for a bird to nest in. There's, uh, there's not much area for them to forage in. But idle systems, um, get heavy with a duff layer that's really hard to penetrate for a nesting bird. If you think of a small bird trying to break into that system, you may have some new growth sitting up on top, but underneath you've got kind of a hard crust and it's really tough for them to penetrate and get down into that. Even for a duck, something that's a little heavier, that would be a tough system to get into. So basically I'd recommend a light to moderate annual graze where you need to. And if you can rotationally graze other pastures, or even idle them for a couple of seasons before grazing them again. You're likely managing that system well for stand health, wildlife value, and keeping some grass in the bank for a dry year. That makes sense. Um, so I guess with that grazing component, like there's no denying that you are gonna end up with, you're either gonna have to change up your management structure, you might have to graze a few fewer cows on that piece of ground to, to maintain that. Um, and then there's the other stuff we've talked about earlier, like disease and uh, limited or competition with winter feed and that sort of stuff with wildlife. So are there way, is there a way to balance maintaining that wildlife population with those other costs and, and risks? Sure. Well, there are definitely costs for sure to it. Um, some that are more intuitive and some that are less intuitive. But I think what it really comes down to is your own personal values. I mean, if you look at it, kids cost money, but people keep insisting on having them around because they're important to somebody's daily lives as well as their own legacy. Uh, wildlife values can be equally important to land stewards, especially in consideration of their families and the legacy that they want to leave. 
I would never advocate for somebody to fully swing into protecting their entire operation for, for wildlife, unless they're at that stage in life where they don't need the working landscape for their own livelihood. But everyone can leave a little something for their wild neighbors. And it's, it's certainly not a black and white, um, you know, zero to one. There's, there's all kinds of room in that scale that works for you. Even the most hardcore farmers I work with still like to see bears at their field edge. They like to see hawks soaring overhead and maybe a nice set of antlers moving through the yellow canola fields. Generally, if you look at your investment of time and resources, there's often a way to work with your natural resources and ecological services rather than against them. And I think that's an important management consideration. What's your style? Um, if you've got a fence that keeps getting broken in the same spot, rather than repair that fence to the same standard every year, maybe you want to consider a few different options for a wildlife friendly fence that doesn't become a death trap to fawns and that also doesn't need constant repair by you. And there's, there's a whole host of different options available for, for wildlife friendly fencing. Um, and the point of that is that it's supposed to work for both the landowner and the animals. It's, it should be a, a two-way street in that regard. Uh, probably the most important thing to think about though is that not every system will work in every location. If you have elk all around you, you may wanna be careful about implementing a swath or a bale graze. Maybe you want to turn cows out early into these areas before winter starved elk can find it. Maybe you want to consider placing those systems well away from valley edges or forests. That makes sense. And on kind of that note, I guess, uh, what are some specific practices producers should consider when living with wildlife on their property? Uh, maybe expanding on, on the feed and the water and, and the fencing there. Sure. Uh, one of the bigger things in the peace country is manage your forage supply early, uh, uh, right after you bale would be great, or before the snow starts to fall would be, would be even better. I'm admittedly already late in bringing my bale supply home, and I know the elk are starting to get in, into it here, so i got to get on that. Um, you want to bring bales into the yard in the fall when you can. It's certainly easier when you don't when you can leave the tractor unplugged out in the middle of the field rather than having to fire it up and it's it's much less labor intensive to do that earlier. Uh, you want to bring the most susceptible bales home first so the ones that are closest to the valleys where the elk are going to come out and they feel safety um, close to those trees you want to get those bales home first. You want to protect them so I would use panels or other barriers to prevent access to your forage supply and that means if you have to stack them in the field where where they come from Try to get panels up around those bales right there and that can uh, at least buy you a little bit of time before you have to bring them home. Um, basically, I equate running a bale operation to owning a liquor store in a sketchy part of town. If you own a liquor store, are you going to leave the front door wide open at night and expect maybe the cops to help keep the riffraff out? Oh. Or are you going to lock it down with steel bars and protect your assets? It's the exact same philosophy. If you do have problems, talk to your insurance agency and conservation officer early. Um, they do want to help you mitigate your problems and prevent future liabilities. Uh, they can recommend solutions that fit your situation and in some cases can help source supplies for you to help yourself. Bear in mind though that they are not a cash cow and their help will dry up as soon as they suspect that you're just trying to get cash or compensation for repeat problems. They want to help you help yourself. Remember that liquor store analogy. Um, 
and uh, that, that should go far. Bale or swath grazing are excellent tools, and I do use both of these extensively in my operation, despite being the center of attention for two elk herds. Uh, I use my own cattle to try to keep elk at bay, as elk and cattle tend not to like to mix too much. I also use bale and swath graze in pastures that are close to home and out in the open. Swath graze early in the season before snow gets too deep so that you're reducing exposure time to those tasty crops. Uh, choose areas that are open and exposed to roads and humans. Don't bale or swath graze in areas that are protected by hills or forests where elk can graze without fear. That makes sense. Yeah, I've heard lots of guys who have issues with that, that bale and swath grazing and the elk moving in. <laughs> so that, that makes sense to go yeah. early. Well, especially if they're, like I say, tucked in somewhere, you know, you got a little pasture or a little field somewhere um, tucked in around or with trees all around it, the elk are just going to graze in there for days and days and days and just be completely un, undisturbed and, and unfettered. Right. Um, do you have any notes on kind of diseases and stuff? I know some people have talked a bit about, um, winter feed places being kind of a hot spot for disease and stuff like that, but do you have any thoughts on that? It can be, um, to be honest, wildlife disease isn't my strong point. Uh, I'm more focused on the ecology and the direct competition for resources. But I do know that there is potential for transfer pathogens from wildlife to cattle and vice versa. Um, so you want to manage herds to try and keep those interactions of cattle and wildlife to a minimum. Um, that's pretty much the best defense I can, I can suggest. That makes sense. Um, and there are a couple of alternatives that we've started to talk about, um, even at the Forage Association, um, that opposed to like the usual, you know, trapping coyotes, poisoning uh, pests, that sort of stuff. Um, can you talk about the benefits and the kind of effectiveness of things like beaver pond levelers and livestock protect protection dogs and 3D fencing and that sort of thing as um, just wildlife management in general? Sure. So I guess one thing to talk about specifically, maybe this is a good point to to discuss it is managing predators. Mm -hmm. So we actually have a flock of sheep on our property. Uh, we've got about 32 sheep, I think here right now. And we also have coyotes. And we've actually yet to have a problem with predation, even though I occasionally see coyotes right in the sheep den, even when there are fairly brand new lambs on the ground. Um, seeing that did cause us to want us to set up a bit of a mesh fence to try and keep that temptation at bay. Um, Cause you can only trust them as as far as their appetite goes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and there may be a day where I might need to use lethal methods to protect the flock. But as long as the current truce is maintained, I think the worst thing I could do is start killing good coyotes. Um, nature abhors a vacuum. And if I start removing good coyotes, that might mean that by bad coyotes come in to come through and take their place. Um, as you mentioned, uh, a good guard dog, few dogs even around the yard can really help to keep predators away. Um, there's certain breeds that in particular would be good. Uh, Great Pyrenees, Maremma, I think is how you pronounce it, are good family-friendly dogs and deal with our winters fairly well. 
Uh, Carillions are also really good against bears if you if you have that kind of proximity to tree cover, but uh, be warned they can be a bit of a handful. Um, you talked about uh, beaver pond levelers. Um, these are becoming a bit of a useful tool in the toolbox here right now. Beavers generally respond to the sound of rushing water. It causes them to cut trees down and dam that flow um, to create a, a beaver pond. Uh, beaver pond in your landscape isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. It can become a, a reliable source of water on your property. Uh, they're also, beavers are also fantastic landscape artists and cause a cascade of land use change through their activity. But if you do want or need to control water levels for flood prevention mitigation, a pond leveler can be installed. The leveler is essentially a pipe that is installed that creates a permanent outflow of the dammed water. When it's installed properly, it flows downstream in somewhat of a silent manner and eliminates that trigger, the, the rushing sound that invokes a response by the busy beavers. So this can create a very affordable and non-lethal solution that should be relatively permanent as well. Uh, I think you asked about 3D fencing. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that's becoming a bit more popular these days and is used in places to help curb damage to winter forage by elk and deer. Both elk and deer are known for the jumping abilities and their intelligence to, to get into food. And, uh, you know, they're tenacious too. They'll keep at it until they, they can get into it. So 3D fence adds a horizontal component to the fence and helps to curb the jump ability of the fence. In a permanent bale yard, the installation and setup of these can be very helpful as a long-term storage solution. And on another note, this style of fence can also really help to keep fences from being pushed over by the producer's own cattle. I've got a situation here right now where I've got a bale yard that's just uh, made of barbed wire and fence posts. And I need to keep about a 10-foot gap between that barbed wire and my bales. Otherwise, the cows will just push and push and push and eventually break posts and stretch wires. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, in this... In this current year, I've got a lot of hay in the landscape, and that's going to fill that bale yard up. So I'm probably going to have uh, damage from my own cattle in that regard. So right. I'll have to figure out some solution here this year. <laughs> there you go. Um, what are your thoughts on hunting to control populations of, of things like deer and elk and even predators, I suppose? Um, do you have any advice for folks thinking about inviting or giving permission uh, for people to hunt on their land? Sure. Well, hunting is certainly an option. It can then, uh, I'm not sure it's going to control your population. If you've got a massive amount of deer on your property, it's pretty, it's going to be pretty tough to hunt them right out, but it can keep herd animals like elk on their toes and can, can keep them at bay a little bit. Um, and I would suggest that you do um, use hunting to try and um, try and curb that, that enthusiasm by the elk. And what I would recommend is encouraging respectful hunters by setting up a use respect sign anywhere that hunters might uh, access your property or you know come across your your property line. A use respect sign can really uh, help identify that you're willing to offer permission. You usually have your your phone number on it um, as kind of an invitation for a hunter to to give you a phone call and will likely get permission. These use respect signs can be, I think they can still be picked up from Fish and Wildlife offices or through the Alberta Conservation Association. I know they've had some in the past. Um, and have a conversation with the hunters, talk to them, help educate them about the type of animals that you 
that are using your property, uh, you may want to give them a heads up about where, where you see animals coming out and uh, where they might be successful at hunting. Any problem areas that you have as well, maybe you want to encourage hunters to set up, uh, you know, right next to your bale yard and, and try and, uh, try and fend, uh, fend off animals from your forage. Um, I find that when you encourage respectful and responsible hunters, it helps to keep an extra set of eyes or a couple sets of extra eyes in your place to help discourage the, the bad hunters that, are, that might be out there. Right, yeah. I've definitely talked to a couple of hunters and they, they're, they're always really excited when they get a good spot. <laughs> So yeah, definitely keep an eye out for well, you. And as a hunter myself too, like you want to maintain those relationships too. And I, I had a guy stop by here yesterday and he wants to hunt elk on my, my place here again. And he said, you know, last year we were kind of tripping over each other. Uh, you were out with the tractor and I was trying to hunt elk and maybe we can communicate a little bit better and I can be successful and, you know, give you a bit of a heads up as to where the elk are coming in as well. And, you know, that kind of relationship really speaks volumes to to what uh, what the potential can be. Definitely, definitely. I guess to keep going, uh, in agriculture, we, uh, we're kind of starting to talk a lot about ecological goods and services, um, especially under the previous government, but still it's an issue we need to talk about. Um, and the main problem for, I think, a lot of people when they start talking about ecological goods and services is that it costs money, especially initially to maintain those. Um, but there isn't really a dollar value that they get back on that. Um, it, do you have any thoughts on how managers can make that work or uh, sort of where that's going? Yeah. So I worked in the forest industry for a couple of years, and the ecological goods and services angle is definitely gaining a foothold with industry. And I think this is something that really could be coming for agricultural producers as well. So it's probably admittedly fairly slow going. Um, I don't really advocate paid hunting as part of the upbringing and, um, you know, just kind of the mindset in the province. But there are some really interesting systems in, in the states where landowners are actually compensated financially by habitat programs that hunters pay into. Mm. So in these situations, the better the land produces for quality hunting opportunities, the better the payoff for the landowner. Other things like carbon sequestration are at their infancy for, for producers. But these sorts of programs should be challenged by the everyday landowner to push for qualification. So get organized among your peers and your counties and make some noise about being financially compensated for being a good steward. In the meantime, there are still a bunch of habitat and conservation organizations that would love to help out and at least make your ventures somewhat close to cost neutral. There is support for fencing programs, offsite watering facilities, energy efficient practices and riparian health promotion, all of which help a producer become more cost efficient in their own operation. Right. Um, as people become more urban too, there's um, there are lots of people who don't see the economic and safety implications of having wild animals on your property, um, like having bears and wolves and, and elk even around. Um, so as a rancher mm -hmm. yourself, what are some things you've done on your place to, to live with wildlife and still be a profitable rancher? Yeah. So um, I mentioned before that I've got a kind of a perennial elk problem and I've got areas where I'm fixing that fence every year or I was for a while. Um, in one of those locations anyway, I ended up installing a gate where, where elk 
do like to cross into my pasture. So when I can, I try to open that in wintertime to encourage the elk to, to cross into my land without breaking the top wire every year. So helps them, helps me. Uh, I also raise the bottom wire of a lot of my fences to allow fawns to cross under. And those are points are quite easy to pick out. There's usually a fairly well-groomed trail um, leading up to and then over the fence or under the fence. Um, and I've replaced some of those critical crossing spots with smooth, smooth wire on the bottom as well. Uh, I've worked with a few different conservation organizations to restore some drained wetlands in my property and to fence off about 30 acres of adjacent nesting cover. I don't really miss those 30 acres at all for my operation. The fence that was installed has replaced a very poor fence, which has actually saved me untold hours of work that could have gone into replacing. I also use the adjacent two pastures for a deferred graze, which has resulted in an overall pasture improvement in those spots over three years. And that's much higher productivity annually for the short window of time that I put cattle in there. I've also fenced off my dugout and I draw water out to offsite watering systems that provides clean water year round to cattle. So this leaves emergent vegetation for nesting and brood rearing for songbirds and waterfowl and keeps my water clean for my livestock. I also mentioned before not hunting or trapping coyotes. That allows that community to somewhat regulate itself. I've got a good group of coyotes out there and I'm not gonna upset the system. Um, I've also implemented a rotational graze where I can leave some complex vegetation structure um, in around the pasture in different parts of, uh, of each year. I've encouraged suckering by aspen stands by cutting down select mature trees within that stand, which produces a hormonal response and uh, creates more, more young shoots to, to grow up. This will eventually help to create more areas of shade for my cattle, as well as promote wildlife habitat as the, the stand matures. I've added bat boxes and tree swallow boxes, which help keep insect loads down, which helps keep horn flies off cattle during the summer. Um, I also don't use pesticides and I only spot spray herbicide with thistles and other noxious weed outbreaks occur. Makes sense. Lots of different things uh, it sounds like that you have done and are doing that have benefits for you economically as well as uh, being beneficial to the wildlife. Yeah. Trade-offs for sure, but it's, I mean, it's something that I, I grew up with. It's a value of mine and I I'd like to learn more about balancing my needs as a cattle farmer and balancing my desires to, to be a good wildlife steward as well. Awesome. I think that's kind of it for my, my list of questions. Um, do you want to plug a website or any resources that you want to mention before we sign off for anybody listening? Anything he lists off that you're trying to hastily scribble down? Don't worry, it's in the comment or it's in the description. So. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of conservation organizations out there. I would say to a landowner that's thinking about doing something, pick one, even if it's not the right one, give them a phone call, tell them what your goals are and what your challenges are. If they can't help you, they will find somebody that, that can help you. They, um, the conservation organizations are fairly, very well networked and they know how to work together already because funding is so limited all over the place. Um, we just pick up the phone, drop an email to somebody and get the conversation going. Um, I do have a, a list of websites um, that I think will be listed here for you. 
cowsandfish.org is really good for riparian health guidance. Alberta Conservation Association has recently put out a new uh, wildlife-friendly fencing document that you can Google and download. Um, there's information about pollinators with Alberta Institute for Wildlife Conservation. Uh, Alberta EFP, that's the Environmental Farm Plan. Uh, that's a good resource for anybody trying to um, help offset costs related to all kinds of um, I'd say green and energy efficient initiatives that they want to implement in their farm. Uh, there's the Bear Smart program, and there's all kinds of wildlife damage control, recreation guides, and human wildlife conflict um, type information available on the Alberta government website. Um, just Google Living with Wildlife. That will that will get you uh, where you want to go. And talk to your neighbors, talk to peers, talk to conservation organizations. Um, these people have worked with landowners and producers across Alberta for many years now and have helped many ranchers and farmers create better relations with their environment. There's generally some level of uncertainty from a producer in asking for help. It's definitely not in a farmer's list of practices to ask for advice on his or her own land. But if you have an idea for what you want to see, there's generally someone out there that can help bring that to reality and can likely help find some funding along the way. You can simultaneously ask for help and be the director of the vision and retain full control of what happens on your land while you are its guardian and its steward. So ask yourself what you want and what your legacy to your children and grandchildren is going to be. Go from there. Awesome. And uh, a little plug for PCBFA, we do have some EFP techs on staff. So if you're interested in developing an, Alberta, an environmental farm plan or something like that, you can definitely give us an email or a call and we can help you out with that as well. Thank you for uh, doing this interview, Rob. No problem, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And to everybody tuning in, thanks for listening. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!